You know you are capable of more because you have a burning desire to get the absolute most out of life. To starve your fears, to follow your dreams, and to realize your true potential. And we are going to do that together. This is The Andy Stork Show. Let's go. Welcome to the Andy Storch Show. I am your host, Andy Storch. This is a show where we can come together to starve our fears, follow our dreams, and fulfill our true potential. And you know I'm always on a mission to do that, whether it's through reading, learning, interviewing experts, um, internalizing things going on in my own life, and sharing some of those thoughts with you. And uh, I have an interview to share with you today with a guy named Mark Metry, who is uh, very impressive, especially considering what he's accomplished at such a young age. Uh, he's in his early 20s. He's a best-selling author of the book, Screw Being Shy. He hosts a really popular podcast called Humans 2.0. Uh, he is a speaker. He is a writer, a contributor to Forbes. Um, he's done all kinds of stuff. And uh, probably most impressive to me is uh, he's built a huge following on LinkedIn uh, as I record this, over 80,000 followers, which is just amazing. I think we started producing content around the same time, and I have about 12,000. So he's just uh, crushing me on there. Not that it's a competition, and I'm not too worried about it. Um, I'm just impressed with what he's done. I enjoy a lot of his LinkedIn posts. And uh, really, I said, what's most impressive is his following. That's not what's most impressive. What's most impressive is the turnaround he's made in his life and the way he's done it, that he seems to be doing things right. Um, he grew up very shy, dealing with many challenges, dealing with racism, um, dealing with all kinds of anxiety. And uh, he has gone on a journey to overcome anxiety and fear uh, to not only start speaking with people when he normally previously could not ever even talk to a stranger, um, but now speaking on stages, speaking on a podcast, um, you know, posting content on LinkedIn, doing all the things he does. So if you are dealing with any kind of anxiety, shyness, um, even some type of depression, uh, or just fear holding you back in different areas, uh, I think this will be a great interview for you because we cover a lot of psychology, the story of how Mark overcame all of this and how he built, uh, got into podcasting and built some of his following. So without any further ado, here is my interview with Mark Metry, author of the book, Screw Being Shy and host of the Humans 2.0 podcast, as well as a regular LinkedIn creator. All right, I'm live from Mark Metry, yeah. best-selling author of Screw Being Shy and Global Top 100 2.0 podcast host, Humans 2.0 podcast host. Mark, welcome to the show. Andy, thank you so much for having me, man. It's about time we did this. It's about time we did this. Yeah, I remember, um, you know, I discovered you on LinkedIn. I don't know how, you know, we must have had a bunch of connections in common and we ended up connecting and I started seeing a bunch of your content and then started seeing your stuff on Instagram and you would comment on some of my stuff and it's like, yeah, the guy's doing some really interesting stuff, obviously killing it on LinkedIn. You've got, um, I don't know, I'm looking at it now, 75,000 followers on LinkedIn. Um, nice. You've got this really popular podcast, Humans 2.0, and uh, just came out with your first book and you've all, you've done it all at a really young age, uh, much younger than me. Um, I'm working on my first book right now and talking about how it took me so long to kind of figure things out. And I know we're all still figuring things out, but Glad we're able to finally, you know, connect live. And I figured it'd be good to share some of what we talk about with uh, with the audience. So for people that don't know you, maybe we'll just start with a little bit of background and introduction to who you are and what you do. 
Yeah, of course, man. You know, I feel like I've worn so many different hats. I feel like I do so many different things that at the end of the day, it just comes down to my passion, my purpose. And that's really focusing on, you know, how can somebody have freedom over their lives? Not just like financial freedom, but true freedom in many different senses, whether that's physical freedom, of course, or emotional freedom or mental freedom. And personally, as myself, like I, I've been at a point where um, I was making a ton of money in my life, like a long time ago, six, seven years ago, and yet wasn't really successful, at least in my eyes, didn't really get to experience life uh, and enjoy it. And after like hosting my podcast and talking to a lot of other leaders, you just begin to realize just different trends of different like billionaires you have on to um, like the co-founder of Netflix. And you just begin to realize that um, success is definitely multifaceted. And just because someone has a lot of money or has a lot of professional success doesn't necessarily mean that um, like their mental health is in a good spot. And so yeah, that's what I've decided to like really try to focus on because uh, you know, this is very much like an invisible problem and any, any problem in our society that's invisible usually impacts more people, but yet it doesn't get addressed. And so I'm just trying to do my part based on like my life experiences and what I've learned. So I love that. Any, any problem in society that is kind of invisible probably impacts a lot more people than you know, or you realize, or you think about. And something I've noticed uh, and going on my own journey and interviewing uh, hundreds of, you know, dozens of people, a couple hundred people as well through my podcast is that uh, we often think that our struggle belongs to us alone and yet so many other people are dealing with the same fears, limiting beliefs, struggles, challenges. Uh, and it's only when we actually talk about it and bring it to the forefront that we find out that, oh, I'm actually not alone. Other people have dealt with this too, and I can get help. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think like just realizing that and having that awareness is so powerful. Like I remember growing up, I never really heard the words, like I didn't know what mental health was. And so, when you go through an experience, whatever you are the most surrounded by is invisible. And I remember I, I heard this analogy once, uh, I think it was by David Foster Wallace. And it was, uh, he was talking about two goldfish in a, in a fishbowl. And, you know, obviously fish swim in water throughout the entire day. And, you know, one goldfish says to the other, how's the temperature of the water? And the other goldfish says, wait, what's water? <laughs> and so it's like this goldfish is surrounded by this thing all day yeah. that's invisible, but yeah. yet it doesn't really know. It doesn't really see it, but yet let's say it wants to leave that fishbowl. Let's say it wants to go above water. It can't. And so the water limits it, but it doesn't really realize it's there. And so I've just learned like that's, that's how everyone's life is like in their own unique way based on mm. like their story. And I think a lot of people too end up growing up and like, not really seeing their story as their story. Like I remember like personally for me and also talking to a lot of other people who went through a lot of like interesting stuff. Um, a lot of us thought like you, you don't have a story. Like you're just some boring old person. And the reality is, is like, that's because you're encapsulated by that reality mm. all day, every day of your life. And so it's only until like you begin to talk about it and gain the awareness and like the language for it, where you really begin to construct these things in like your favor that can help you, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you've got to put things in your perspective, you know, how, how they affect you. But yeah, there's so many other people out there dealing with similar things. And, you know, right now, you and I are recording this uh, during pretty tumultuous time in early June. Um, the Black Lives, Mooder, uh, Black Lives Matter movement has been rising with protests in cities all over the country, um, starting in Minneapolis. And uh, in your book, uh, Screw Being Shy, I started reading some of that the other day. And I know you dealt with a lot of racial discrimination when you were younger, uh, that you were really shy, which led to uh, a lot of challenges. And of course, led to you um, some of the discrimination and writing the book. You can talk a little bit about some of what you dealt with and how that became a big challenge for you in your life. Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, for me, obviously I'm not black, but my parents came from Egypt um, and they immigrated to the U.S., to the East Coast, Northeast, uh, like a year before I was born here in America. And, um, you know, I remember growing up in like the inner city, and so there was like a lot of diversity already. And so I didn't really face that much racism, but I remember, a, you know, a really interesting point in my life was um, I remember moving to this small town outside of the inner city, very rural area with like 5,000 people in that town and a lot of nice people in that town for sure. And then also, the really interesting part about this place was there was no racial diversity whatsoever. I think there was like one, two, three other families who looked different than everyone else who was primarily like Caucasian. And um, and then also like at this time in America, too, this was uh, like post 9-11 era. And so if you were like Middle Eastern or you kind of looked colored, yeah, yeah, you know, you were called like a terrorist, like people thought you're like a ISIS. I mean, that wasn't a thing back then. Yeah. But um, you know, people thought you're like some Islamic fundamentalist, uh, yeah. even though I'm not even Muslim. But um, so yeah, so really, I faced uh, pretty terrible, terrible things. You know, it wasn't too terrible, but I remember just having memories of like people like giving me death threats, vandalizing my property. Um, being called like a sand, like just a ton of different things throughout my entire life. And so I remember kind of slipping into this mentality pretty early on that I didn't realize then, but it was just this mentality of like, nobody wants to hear your voice. Like everywhere you go, you're the one that that's like always different. You're never going to relate to these people or anything like that. And it just made me very, very socially anxious, could never talk to people. And um, that came with many other issues, but yeah, for sure. I've definitely faced, uh, you know, racism, not not like Black Lives Matter, but um, I've definitely faced racism. And I know that it's something that can impact like your life forever, because like the reality is, is like when you walk into an environment and people judge you based on something that you can't control, which is how you look like how you just happen to be born, where you happen to be from. That's something that, you know, for people who are not in a supportive or growing environment, those are things that can really alienate people and cause a lot of anxiety, cause a lot of mental health problems. And um, the reality is, is like, this happens all the time. Yeah. You know, like this happens all the time, like it doesn't necessarily have to be murder, but in so many different communities, like around the world, there are people who are being discriminated as a result of this. And personally for me, I'm more kind of like, because of what I do, I'm more focused on the mental health 
side yeah. of them to see how that affects them because I know uh, what it did for me. And so, yeah, I mean, it's definitely something that's brutal, but I, I hope one day we can like look back at these times and yeah, I, I, better. I, I do hope so as well. I hope that all of this is leading to accelerated progress for sure uh, in, our, in our society. I think it is. And I won't tell you, I won't ask you how to solve all of society's problems right now, but I know you have studied the mental, mental health side of things a lot because I follow you on social media and you post a lot about that stuff. Um, so I'm curious, you know, where, what does that sort of stuff lead to? What are the biggest mental health challenges that you hear about, read about, you've experienced, you see, and what are some things people can do to help themselves or help their friends deal with that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, for me, I think there's many different layers that you could look at it, but in terms of like what affects the average person, I think the first thing that you, someone needs to look at is not even like their mind, not even their mental. I think people need to look at their brain itself. And what I mean by that is like our brain is this survival organ that is very, very smart, very, very intelligent, very, very, um, interesting and has been evolving throughout thousands of years to really help create uh, this reality that keeps human beings alive and safe. And that's why, for example, like we do a lot of things that we do. Like um, I remember I was reading a book by Malcolm Gladwell and he was talking about like race. And he said that, you know, like if, if your brain throughout like thousands of years has been used to living in the same civilization, in like the same tribe where everyone looks the same mm -hmm. but then now we live in a world where you know people are diverse and there's globalization and you could go wherever you want to and where you get access to all these cultures and ideas there's definitely a default part of some people's brain that mm -hmm. naturally fears the unknown people that don't look like that right because they're threats they're perceived as threats. yeah exactly and so that's like one of the key uh themes that i would say for people to just start learning and like once you begin learning about that, you begin to see how um, like terrorized our brain is today in this world that has been grown through evolution. You begin to realize like, wait, hey, like when you live in a world where you can get any kind of food delivered that's been invented like over like the last 50 years, that's like yeah. some crazy like ice cream sundae with like sour patch kids on it and all this stuff yeah. and you eat that. If it takes more than 30 minutes you're upset <laughs> yeah exactly and so like there's there's various ramifications to that and you know there are ramifications in terms of your mental health too like you know a, a key neurotransmitter that gets talked about a lot in the mental health community and also on the leadership side too is this neurotransmitter called serotonin and serotonin does a lot of things in our body it's very complex from regulating our mood to our appetite to our sleep to regulating how we function in social groups. That's why like specifically it's super important for people who have social anxiety, but like it turns out that 90% of your serotonin isn't even in your brain. It's in like part of your digestive system in this thing called your gut microbiome. And so like when you begin to learn about these things and you kind of look at the science, you begin to realize that the modern lifestyle that most people are in are in environments where their brain is not going to be doing well. And the reality is, is if your brain is not doing well, just like at a physiological biochemical level, because of how you are moving it, what you're feeding it, um, what, what it's getting access to, 
if your brain isn't strong, then your mind, your mindset isn't going to be strong either. And so I feel like people like just when each people like look at themselves, like at an individual level, you see these different layers and specifically in terms of mental health. I think if people just looked at their brain and saw how they were treating it just from like a objective scientific perspective, and they began to like do some of these things or just change their behavior a little bit, I think they would see a lot of difference from like being able to focus better to being more at ease. And so that's what I would say to like look at first. Yeah. So what are some of the things I know you, you post about some of this stuff all the time and and you guys, you and I are pretty aligned um, on, you know, what people need to be doing and some of the things to take care of our physical health, our mental health. So what are some things people should be thinking about doing or could be doing to not only improve their mental health, but their focus and productivity, because like you said, whether you're an entrepreneur, you're in the corporate world, you're an employee, we all have a lot of things we need to get done and we're all bombarded with distractions on a daily basis, whether it's tech, social media, emails, um, requests from other people, you know, marketing, advertising, all the crazy stuff going on in the world, um, things we can get at our fingertips. So what can we be doing to improve our, our health and our productivity? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there, there are a lot of like tactics that I can say, but I want to introduce a theme of like, I think a lot of people's behavior goes towards where they don't want it to go Mm. due to some sort of dysfunction of how their, how their brain communicates with itself. And what I mean is like, um, you know, an an idea that I was introduced to by uh, like Mark Manson and, and other psychologists is this idea between like half of your brain um is the more emotional feeling side of your brain and then we have a more kind of thinking uh logical side to our brain and so emotions a lot of the times in our life will be dominant we will feel some sort of an emotion and then the thinking part of our brain then starts to think on what we should do with this emotion how we should take action on it good or bad and so a lot of us have these two halves of our brain that don't actually talk to each other because a lot of it is due to, you know, if you experience something traumatic earlier in your life, then you face a lot of stress and a lot of people's go-to natural reaction to that is by shutting down and compartmentalizing problems and just trying to shove them in the back of their life and not think about them and try to ignore them. And the reality is, is that can still control your behavior like 10 years down the road. That's just how the human animal works. And so finding ways to open your brain to communicate can be extremely powerful. This is where things like um, the ability for probably someone else to ask you open-minded questions, like going to therapy, for example, Mm -hmm. can start to facilitate this communication. Uh, Doing things like meditation, where you kind of sit down and you're able to um, disconnect from the external environment, uh, being able to form like a, a sense of like your true self, uh, in life, like via journaling, writing down your thoughts, um, doing things like that, where it's more expressive, you eventually start to learn how these two parts of your brain can communicate. And like a good analogy to think about this is, um, you know, imagine if someone, imagine a car is driving down the highway and there's a baby in the back seat and that baby is like the emotional part of your brain 
Mm-hmm. And the person who is driving, who has their hands on the steering wheel, that is the thinking part of your brain. And so a lot of the times what will happen is we'll face some sort of an emotional reaction, mm-hmm. which is the baby crying. And the person driving the car will look up at the rearview mirror at the baby crying. And they're like, hey, what's wrong? What do I do? And while they're doing that, they're not looking in front of them in the road. And they're like swerving. They're going left and right. They may get into an accident. And it's because these two parts are too – they're not talking to each other. They're not forming a dialogue. And so that's why you get like a lot of people, including myself, who are like pretty smart, advanced, like always trying to learn human beings who like sometimes question our behavior. And that's because like these two parts of our brain, whether you say you want to do something, but then you don't do it. Or um, you t- you tell yourself um, you don't want to do this thing, but then you end up doing it either way. That's usually a dysfunction with your nervous system within these two halves of your brain working. So I think one of the main things that people can do is learn how to bridge these types of communication between the more emotional part of us and the more thinking part of us. And like the reality is, is like as a guy, as like most males are, a lot of us try to be very thinking dominated but distant and reserved from our emotions and like the reality is is like when you do that sometimes you don't necessarily face the high high and the low lows of the emotional reactions and so we kind of put it on as a defense mechanism to try to protect us when in reality is you need to have a good mix of the sort of feeling emotional part of you and also the the thinking more logical side to you it's almost like imagine a balance a scale and then like a heart on one side to like symbolize feeling and emotion and then a brain on the other to symbolize kind of the more thinking side and so i feel like a, a big part of that aside from like biochemical reasons that we talked about before yeah. i feel like those two like core themes uh, trip up a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. And I hadn't heard the uh, the analogy to the the uh, the driver and the baby in the back and the emotions. Um, I've looked at and run programs on how uh, you know the logic part of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, operates. You know, takes care of a lot of what you do, but then the amygdala, you know, obviously uh, takes over a lot of times when you're faced with these threatening situations. Which um, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about this, as you pointed out. Throughout most of our history, uh, that served us well, right? Because if you're being chased by a lion or a tiger, your amygdala tells you, like, "Hey, you gotta, you gotta run away right now." Um, but now yeah. it's like, "Oh, you get an email or someone comments on your post and says they don't agree with you, and your amygdala fires, <laughs> and all of a sudden you want to get in a fight with somebody or you run or run away." And it's like, "Whoa, this is your like you said, your brain is bombarded. It's not really prepared for the modern society that we live in, which is why we have to." you know, take a look at doing some of these things to take care of it. Yeah, of course, man. And and like, you know, my book, Social Anxiety in Specific, um, you know, I focus on this and the fact that like social anxiety is not new. It's like one of the oldest, most primal human fears. And I even remember when uh, Seth Godin came on my podcast, he told me this and he gave me this beautiful example of, you know, a lot, you know, humans survived because we lived in groups and mm-hmm. our brains equated uh, living in a group with survival and being safe, which was very much true at the time. Right. And so they, you know, Seth was telling me that, you know, if you were in some sort of a tribal meeting 
uh, with your leader and you spoke up and maybe you disagreed, maybe you had different opinions, a very common punishment for that was social exile, kicking you out. Yeah. And kicking you out means you're alone, which means you're basically going to get killed. You're going to yeah, get eaten. Definitely. You're going to get kidnapped. Yeah. yeah. And so social anxiety is very much like something similar to that. And it's just really interesting to see, like you said, like how these things play out and the fact of like, you know, because of amazing technology, we've been able to like 10,000 times X productivity and like have access to all this awesome stuff in our phone and like do the craziest stuff on LinkedIn and so on and so forth. But it's like, it's also a mirror. It's a model of the world and the different ways that our brain has developed these feedback loops to grow with the world at a social level, at a psycho, a psychological level, at a sort of biochemical level of like your body and your brain and maybe the sun too. You really see how a lot of these things are being manipulated today and the reality is, is like, if you don't know this, this is not like some of it's common sense, some of it's not common sense, but it's like, if you live in the world that we live in today and you don't know these things, you could live your entire life and just think like, this is the way that it is. When in reality, there are like certain knobs and levers that you can push and pull and have some sort of a different effect, have some sort of different output. And you like really begin to like make strides in improving your life. Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of people that live a lot of their lives in anger or fear because of all the things going on around them in society. You know, someone cuts you off in traffic, uh, you know, and you're getting angry, right? I've seen it many times and it's just crazy because logically it, it's silly. This is why I'm such a big advocate of meditation and mindfulness because for me, I was never like a crazy angry person, but having meditated consistently for five years now um, has has changed me so that if someone does cut me off in traffic or I merge in front of somebody else and I see them flicking me the bird and I'm like, why? Like what? This is not, this is not really a threat to you. Right. But we perceive it as a threat. And if we're not aware of that, so I like you bring up that, yeah. point, like you could go through your whole life, but the more awareness we have, the more we can do something about it. Yeah, of course. I, I one time saw this quote and it went something like, um, people use, other people, events, situations to uh, relieve themselves of psychological stress. And like the reality is like that person who's driving, like I bet they have a ton of other things going on with their day or that anger, that fear, that stress is just compounding and building and building and building. And the next thing they know, you know, the, uh, the thinking part of their brain is like, oh, you're so mad and pissed off because this guy just cut you off. And then they have an emotional reaction mm-hmm. when in reality it has nothing to do with you and yeah. they're just continuing the cycle. And like, I remember also living in fear for most of my life. And it's, uh, it's just obviously like I still have problems today. I still go through ups and downs like everyone, but um, it, it's just crazy. And like, that's why I wrote my book, just trying to get this information, trying to get these things that are practical that work that are validated by other people and science out there because it's uh, i wish i had like learned the stuff when i was younger and growing yeah. up even though i'm still a young guy <laughs> yeah you're a young guy now right you're in your 20s and you're you've learned it and you're teaching it to other people which i love um let's talk about zeroing on social anxiety a lot of people suffer from this um you wrote the book screw being shy and in your book you say uh if i remember right when you were younger you were so shy and had so much social anxiety that you would not talk to anybody. And now 
you've got a, a globally recognized podcast. You talk to hundreds of thousands of people all the time. You're talking to me live on LinkedIn and Facebook right now. Um, how did you make that switch? How did you flip that, that switch? Dude, I remember being 18 years old and just not being able to walk up to someone and introduce myself and um, literally could never talk to people. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was a series of it was a series of steps, a series of uh, seasons and months and years of my life. But, you know, really, I think one of the most important things that I began to do was begin to look at fear from a biochemical perspective in my life. Like there are those acronyms of fear on social media that I see that it's like um, face, face everything and rise, uh, F-E-A-R. Uh, the one that appearing real, I think, is one of them. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my favorite one. False evidence appearing real, and um, you know that one is that one just goes to show you like how much your mind can exaggerate and kind of use stress as this real fuel to set up boundaries in your life that you feel like in the moment you you literally cannot do or you cannot pass that, right. um, and so. For me, I look at fear from a biochemical perspective of like, you know, you were mentioning the amygdala, you were mentioning the brain, like when fear occurs in your body, there is like a, like people can scan it, people can measure how much is happening. And so for me, like one of the, one of the biggest things that I learned is that, you know, anxiety and fear, a part of it is physical. A part of it in the sense is physical. It is different uh, brain chemicals being secreted by your body. Uh, your heart is beating a ton. You might be out of breath. Your your throat starts tightening up. Maybe you, your legs start shaking. Um, you start to sweat. And so for me, trying to leverage fear from that perspective has been immensely powerful in the sense of like sometimes if I you know, feel a lot of fear, I will just like go for a walk and I will try to um, kind of like journal, but like in real time, like with myself on this walk, because the thoughts that I'm going to get if I'm anxious and just sitting down are going to be totally different from the thoughts that I get if I'm walking around and anxious. Um, and so like, for example, just learning to put down your lifestyle uh, was extremely, extremely important for me. And being able to, like, for example, um, you know, when you get like a runner's high, for example, you know, I mean, there is some debate now of what actual like chemical compound does that. Yeah. Um, but if you say, you know, you, like you, you had an endorphin high, uh, that's the same receptor in your body that regulates pain. Like when you go to a hospital and they give you some medication, it interacts on that same receptor because it regulates pain. And so people with social anxiety who talking to other people is painful for them, trying to look at underlying ways to manage that social anxiety pain um, is a great outlet for you to then be able to relieve the fear a little bit, begin to lessen the load of it, and then begin to expose yourself to that fear. You know, like I remember when I first found out I had social anxiety when I was 18, I began to like go out there and I started to talk to like random people. And at first I couldn't get myself to do it. Like no matter what, I just literally could not walk up to someone and I could like literally feel my brain holding me back. 
and and at that time i was like over 200 pounds and um i didn't know anything about health i didn't know anything about science but it didn't work and so i kind of went through this period where i really uh was able to transform myself uh physically speaking lose a lot of the weight focus a lot on my diet nutrition and exercise kind of the physical aspect of what i was talking about and then i was more able to then break down to myself how do i expose myself to these fears you know someone who has social anxiety their biggest fear is talking to people and so i remember just kind of like pulling out a journal and writing down to myself like hey i'm gonna uh go outside today and ask five random people what the time is outside (laughs) Yeah, And I would do that because that was like a very singular, like logical task that I could put my thinking brain on so that it could just sort of do that. It's pretty easy. And then my emotional brain wouldn't freak out because I was talking to someone. Yeah. And And so then I did that. The failure is so low, right? They're going to tell you what time it is. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Then I would like work my way up to that. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I could, I could go way more in depth into it. There's like four key layers of social anxiety, but those are some of the things that I, uh, begin to do for sure. It's basically about um, recognizing the fears you're having, um, breathing, slowing down, uh, writing some of those things down, talking to yourself about it, uh, understanding what you're facing, and then starting to take some baby steps towards that. Like if it's social anxiety, going and asking five people what time it is, and then maybe working up to having more of those conversations. Um, But then you made a huge leap and you got into, you started the podcast and have this huge following on LinkedIn. How did all that come about? I'm curious. Yeah, I remember um I remember in like 2017 I was just like trying to live my life <laughs> and I remember just um you know, I remember still running into to problems that I didn't necessarily have solutions for and I remember just like thinking to myself like I need to get in touch with the people that know what they're talking about. I need to get in touch with like the real leaders, the real experts. And I was like, how am I going to do that? And I was 20 years old at the time. And I was like, how is a 20-year-old going to get access to um, you know, a lot of the influential people that I have on today? And I was just like, I'm going to start a podcast. You know, I had a background of like online marketing, so I knew I could definitely like market it, grow it. And uh, yeah, that's what I did. And I honestly, I kind of use it as a very like selfish self-development tool for myself. Like I... I like got into meditation and I started interviewing like the best meditation experts. I got into nutrition, interviewed the top people on that. And um, honestly, that's still kind of how I use it today. And, um, and then LinkedIn came through just interviewing people. And I remember I interviewed um, uh, Quentin Allums like way back, like episode 30 of my podcast. And I kind of heard his story and how he used LinkedIn. And I was like, whoa, I didn't even know you could post content on LinkedIn. And then yeah. that's where I began to like experiment. And uh, yeah, I probably got consistent about posting on LinkedIn, like the at like end of 2017, beginning of 2018. And um, yeah, I mean, ever since then, it's been, you know, a part of uh, how I communicate with the world. It's been a massive platform for me for both like my professional growth and also my personal growth, just meeting the right people. So yeah, it's it's been awesome, for sure. And I try to introduce as many people to it as well. That's awesome. I love it. And uh, coincidentally, it's funny, we started our podcast, first podcast around the same time, started posting consistently on LinkedIn around the same time. Mm. Uh, and uh, you have a lot more followers than I do. So I'm not comparing though. Not comparing. <laughs> Good. 
Don't know for yourself. No, that's good because that you post a lot of great content that I learn from all the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're all in different places on the journey and it's really been really cool to see all the stuff that you've been doing on there and how you've leveraged it and utilized it, uh, to help people. So, um, speaking of helping people, you know, I want to tie things up here and, um, you know, we're almost out of time, uh, and ask you, you know, with all the stuff going on in the world, uh, 2020 has been a crazy year, right? We've had, uh, an impeachment trial. We've had a global pandemic that, Send everybody back home. Now we're seeing, uh, you know, marches and protests in every city around the United States and most major cities in the Western world. Um, just crazy stuff going on. And of course, there's, there was already a 24-hour news cycle that was distracting for a lot of people. Right. Now it's just on steroids, right? It's on fire. Um, it's easy to get distracted by that stuff, and and that stuff causes people so much anxiety. What are a couple things that people can do to stay more focused? And, and really focus on taking ownership of their own lives, their own careers, to make sure that they're successful. They're not getting too pulled away and distracted by all the craziness going on. Yeah. And, and honestly, you know, I I bet you like aliens are going to show up next month. Like, I feel like <laughs> just, yeah, what's next? It's just, right? it's just that year. Like, I know, uh, I know like a month ago or two months ago or something like the Pentagon had confirmed like UFO sightings from like the Navy or something like that. Oh, great. Um, yeah, no, it was crazy. So I, I expect that to be soon. But uh, but yeah, I mean, honestly, what I would say is one is like, you can't just completely ignore everything that's going on. Because if you do that, obviously, if you're busy, and like, you, you can't focus on anything else then do that. But I feel like if you just try to totally ignore it, then there's always going to be a part of your brain. That's like, hey, like what's going on? Like, hey, what can I do? How can I get involved? Yeah. Um, so I would say to like, just try to stay informed. I would say to like try to find like a few curators so that it's somewhat organized people that, you know, spread like credible, verifiable information that, um, you know, it's probably hopefully non-biased, but that's kind of impossible. Um, but, um, but yeah, I would say to like, have like a real, like a realistic way of like actually getting this information. Then I'd probably say number two is, um, go read, uh, near AL's indistractable. I don't know if you've read it or heard not. of it. No. Oh man, I dude, everyone's everyone in the 21st century should read this book. Okay. Um, it's one of the few books that I have um, come across that actually addresses like uh, smartphone and social media and what you actually have to do, at just like a very very realistic way yeah. of realizing that there is a deeper root cause. And that you still need to use your phone for whatever reason. You can't just completely eliminate it from your life. So I would say that. And then the last thing that I would say is like, um, you need to have a better relationship with your phone. You know, so many of us like have just sort of been eventually just like now have a smartphone and we just kind of like take it everywhere we go. And it's just like this thing that is just always kind of with us and we just kind of use it all the time. Yeah. But I think people need to step back and just reevaluate and create like a constructive relationship with their smartphone in the sense of like, you should not be on something all day, like no matter what it is. And like being able to like put your phone and like let it charge for like two hours in like the corner of your room and then you go do something else is something that I think a lot of us need to get into of like these zones of just complete focus. Like if you're going to be on your phone and you're going to be on LinkedIn or you're checking your email, or you're on social media or whatever, 
you should actually sit down and actually focus on what it is, what, like what you're doing on your phone. Yeah. But if you have something that you don't want to do on your phone or something totally different, sit down or, or stand up and focus on that. Don't focus on like having your phone in your pocket and like checking it every five minutes. That just totally is not a good relationship. Yeah. Um, and then of course, like shut off your notifications. Like, I don't know about you, but I have all of my notifications shut off except for a few, uh, several people on like my favorites contact list. Yeah. But like other than that, I have all text message notifications, all calls, all social media, everything shut off because I want to be in a relationship where I'm choosing my phone and my phone isn't choosing me yeah. aside, you know, than like the really like the most important people in my life where I need to be in contact with them. But right. yeah, that's what I would say too. So I hope that was helpful. It is very helpful. It's a big one. Um, I know a lot of this stuff, but it's still a great reminder to me to try to take <laughs> control, right? To take control of your phone. And people don't realize that, you know, there are a lot of highly paid professionals out in Silicon Valley and other places who are spending all their time who design the smartphone and all the apps in your smartphone. And their one question is, how do we get people to use this more? How do we make this yeah. more addicting, right? That's the whole goal to get you using it more. And that's why those things are so addicting. And oh, look, I'm getting a phone call right now while I'm trying to record <laughs> this. Um, and, it's, and it's ringing in like four different places. So I don't even know how to stop it. Um, <laughs> there we go. Perfect example. No, I think that's, I think that's really great advice. When I've given talks, in places about how to be more productive. One of the things I always talk about is just take your phone off your desk. Everybody has their phone sitting right next to them. And you know, there's plenty of studies that show that you're trying to get work done and then you see a notification pop up. And even if you don't respond to it, just seeing the notification oh, yeah. pulls your brain away from what you're doing. And it takes you something like a full minute or more to get back into whatever you were doing. And if you add that up throughout the day, you lose like an hour of productivity, maybe more that you could get back if you would just you know, take the phone off the desk. So really, really great advice there. Yeah. Last question um, for you, Mark. You know, this podcast I've created, um, and this show and the podcast that it will be on, um, created to support my book, which is called Own Your Career, Own Your Life, all about helping people to stop drifting and take control of their future. Um, when you hear the phrase, own your career or own your life, what comes to mind? What's one last piece of advice you would give? You know, honestly, like I think, the flip of that of like when it comes to drifting i remember for me when i was drifting in my life and when i look at it it's because i wasn't living the truth of who i was why wasn't i doing that because the truth is painful especially if you've been escaping it your whole life and a lot of us don't want to have access to that direct pain and so we try to use our vices in whatever sense of the way to try to escape from life escape from that pain therefore never getting to the truth of ourselves and then just always drifting. Doing the opposite of that, of living in the truth, finding the right ways to cope with your pain is going to make you live the truth of your life. And that's how you own it, you know? So <laughs> self-awareness, connect with yourself, with your truth and take full ownership of your life, live intentionally. I love it. Mark, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I am recording this live on LinkedIn. I've got you tagged there. Um, I imagine that's probably the best place to go for it. But if for anybody who wants to connect with you, um, any other information you want to give? Yeah, no, I would just say connect with me on LinkedIn, shoot me a personalized connection request. And um, yeah, Andy, thank you so much for inviting me. This was fantastic. It was so great to, uh, to, to be here. And after seeing you for so long, keep yeah, doing great, great to turn that uh, relationship into a real live, uh, at least virtual friendship <laughs> talk live. So 
Um, thank you again, Mark Metry, best-selling author of Screw Being Shy and host of the Humans 2.0 podcast. Um, thanks again for joining me, man. Take care.